I'm your host, Alexandra Marshall, and this week we are joined by Matthew Spurgeon. Today we are joined by Matthew Spurgeon from the Bradfield Party. And before we get into the project, I thought we might just tell our audience a little bit about yourself. How did you end up involved in politics? Was it specifically in pursuit of this project, the Bradfield Scheme, or was it more politics in general that got you into it? No, it was um, solely in my foray into politics, solely to get the Bradfield scheme up and in place. So in, if I, if I do get into politics, fantastic, in and out inside of um, two terms because that's all it's going to take to build this. So, so you're very I, much I, a, a one-party issue and that's, your, that's what you're trying to do. Well, yeah, if you follow us on Twitter, you do know we, we delve in, into a few things. We, um, we point out the hypocrisies of the Greens, who have been our biggest detractors. Uh, without, without a shadow of a doubt, the, uh, the, all of our um, negative sentiment on Twitter has been via uh, Greens and Green supporters. That said, uh, we're not totally against everything they stand for by any stretch of the imagination. But we really do need to, to wake up to the fact that Australia needs uh, an increase in water security and we need to, and this is the process of doing it. This is the first of uh, the great you know, inland turns of our rivers and we're only taking 5%. So it's, it's hardly, um, we're hardly up for the criticism that we've been, that's been levelled at. So yeah, certainly one party, water, water security. Well, look, Curtain Call is all about the stars of the culture wars. And uh, with the Bradfield Party, you've certainly found yourself caught up in one part of the ideological conflict in Australia, and that is the one that's raging between environmental movements and the agricultural community. Um, how much of what you deal with is purely politics and how much would you say is genuine debate? Uh, the negativity would be 90% purely politics. And you, and you can tell the, the, the green movements come out in the last you know, 24 hours supporting the mouse plague. For, for what, is the, what is that? Yeah, seriously, you've got people out there that are supporting the mouse plague, oh, not allowed to, to take any action, not allowed to kill mice. These are the people that are against us. And seriously, it, it's, it's just nonsensical, really. And, and 90, yeah, at least 90% is pure politics. Yes, well, before we get into the full detail part of the project, as you say, there's a purely ideological political culture uh, that's holding up infrastructure progress in general in Australia. And uh, I know that LNP and other MPs, um, they say that they're going to support the 
project. And then, of course, when it comes to shove, they don't because they're in fear of losing their inner city seats. Um, and they won't support even the building of basic rural dams, which is something that I struggle with. We had to buy in water for no reason, despite living on the East Coast where there should be plenty of water. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, do you have a frustration when it comes to elections and the, the culture of politicking where you get agreements from parties that then just switch their mind after election takes place? Is that why you sort of started the Bradfield Party, from this frustration? Well, well absolutely. I mean, you see the government spending billions of dollars in drought relief after the drought. Well, you can spend that now when there's probably, and if history tells us anything, there's going to be the next, it'll be 10 years before the next major drought. There'll be a few good seasons, there'll be a few poor seasons, but in 10 years' time, there will be another major drought in Australia. You can That's guaranteed. Uh, but they're doing nothing to ease the next drought. All they're doing is waiting for, um, waiting for it to happen. Then they're going to go out and throw dollars at drought relief, which is just rubbish. Let's, well, it's good. I mean, my father, the last, the drought before this one, he, um, he went in for his drought relief and they just put him on the pension, which is probably fair enough. He was in, in his late 70s so, and, and probably should have been off there. But there just seems to be no action beforehand and it's just coming in after the event, even in, in the lib, la, latest Queensland election, there was say, 10 minutes of talk about the Bradfield scheme and that's just gone. It, both parties were, were talking about it and you haven't heard boo about the Bradfield scheme or any scheme like that since then. It's just rubbish, absolute rubbish. Yes, well, I'm a farmer and we've been to the droughts and uh, uh, we've actually found an old poster in a bar in, in a pub in Sabala uh, talking about how useless the Liberal Party were and the Labor Party 100 years ago because they hadn't done anything about water security and literally nothing had changed at that point in time. So they haven't got a great track record. But now on to the main topic of discussion, which is, of course, the Bradfield scheme. Now we're going to walk through this carefully because it's a project that deserves to be aired and, and have a fair hearing. So the Bradford Scheme, from what I understand, is a major water relocation project devised by the Queensland-born civil engineer uh, Dr John Bradfield in 1938. He's also known as the bloke who designed the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And the purpose was to both irrigate and to drought-proof large areas of Australia, particularly in Queensland. And it was a response to everyone's eternal you know, annoyance and suffering at the fact that we get way too much rain at some times of uh, our cycle and then no rain at all for long periods. And also it falls disproportionately in the north of Queensland as opposed to the south of the continent. Now, this problem is at everyone's forefront of their minds because, as you say, we've just come out of a 10-year drought and we've just had massive floods. And so humans are looking to find solutions to this, this problem. Now, a whole heck load of water falls in North Queensland. What then, according to the Bradfield Scheme? Well, we, we would be uh, taking water and we'd be building a... A small weir, and that's really all it is, a small weir at the 350 metre above sea level mark on the upper Burdekin. There's uh, 45,000 uh, gigalitres goes, um, runs through there in a three-month period, year after year after year. We've got the data going back 60 years. We would simply divert 5% of that water along a, a gravity-fed channel system around about 150 kilometres south which will be on the sea, seaward side 
of the Great Dividing Range comes down to a low point and we simply, gravity takes the water in the same channel straight over the Great Dividing Range and on into inland Queensland. It, the, the major differences between the original Bradfield scheme and this scheme is we've got the advantage of technology that just wasn't available to John Bradfield. We've got, uh, and satellites have um, developed a surface route that's 100% gravity fed, uh, no ongoing costs. Uh, and we take the water via channel. It's quite a circuitous route um, because we're chasing levels the whole way. The whole, the whole key is there's no pumping, no cost. Uh, we take a 1,300-kilometre channel and we, can, we will deposit that water at St George in um, Queensland uh, where it joins the Barwon and it, would, it continues all the way to, near, down to um, Murray Bridge, down, down to Adelaide. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, much of the modern Bradsfield scheme is very different to the original plans laid out by Bradfield when he designed it. And a lot of the criticism for the Bradfield scheme actually relates to the original project rather than the modern envisioning of what you've, got, you've laid out there. So, you know, I mean, Bradfield was thinking about sort of changing uh, the local climate by having open water spaces out in Queensland, which is, of course, no longer part of the project. Um, which myths persist amongst your critics would you oh, like to dispel? And I'm guessing you're no longer trying to change weather patterns. The, the cost of <laughs> pumping water is is just, that keeps coming up. How much is it going to cost to pump the water? And we, we just get sick of it, really, uh, saying, well, you, you're responding to, a, to our pinned tweet, which clearly states that it's 100% gravity fed. There is no cost to pumping water. That's, that's number one. Uh, the original scheme was filling uh, Lake Eyre uh, permanently and letting evaporation do the transportation of water um, to, to a large extent. Uh, we do not enter the Lake Eyre Basin. For, forget just Lake Eyre. We, we do not even go into Lake Eyre Basin. Uh, so that's and when we talk about water evaporating out of Lake Eyre and increasing the rainfall on the eastern on the western side of the Great Dividing Range. Well, that's a fact, but it, it can, be, can be lost in translation and it's open for some debate, uh, like most scientific endeavours are open for debate. Um, you just talk to any of the old farmers around here and we're on Victorian highlands where I live. They all state that when the lake air fills, we get more rain. It's just, just what happens. It, and the, the water just uh, um, evaporates into the atmosphere, comes across when it hits the, the cooler areas, the higher mountains, it increases rainfall. That was the way that John Bradfield was going to irrigate um, New South Wales and Victoria, but we're not involved in that. We, we simply, the water into a channel and it runs down, runs down via, via gravity fed. Okay, um, well, how far fetched is this vision of the Bradfield scheme or is it pretty much in line with your international peers in regards to water projects? Well, as far as international projects go, this is just a baby project. This, this is nothing. The Indians have in, took them three years to build an irrigation project, which is around about 100 times the amount of water that we're talking about. 
of course, they have populations that they have to feed that just put our uh, what we're we're doing you know into the shade. But Pakistan has a, a an irrigation project. The Sri Lankans, two thousand five hundred years ago, built one of the greatest and most enduring irrigation schemes imaginable. It's still going. It's still in um, still in place. And so many people don't realise that. Uh, at one stage, two and a half thousand years ago, Sri Lanka had uh, large tracts of arid land that only had rain every um, now and then. It's now irrigated through their tank system, uh, and it's seen that people just because it's been there two and a half thousand years, it's completely integrated with nature. People just ignore that the fact that that's all man-made. You know, the, the great vast tracts of um, Sri Lanka and their irrigation is and what they can produce and their rainforests and their forests um, is man-made. And, and we, we get quite frustrated that um, a, an irrigation project from 2,000 years ago, whatever it may be, is seen as the height of human development. And yet when we try and when we're proposing an irrigation scheme, which is less water, um, simpler, just um, it, it's met with complete and utter, utter derision by the environmental types. It, it, it's it's bemusing well, to us. I mean, it's nothing compared to, of course, China's uh, South to North Water Project, which is the largest water course transfer project mm -hmm. on the planet in three major um, sections. And so they're, I mean, they're taking, diverting the major rivers of Asia and trying to push it up over the Himalayas. So what you're suggesting is nowhere close to what China's been up to. No, but not. my question here is, is Australia capable of building this project? Because if not, it's a moot point. Oh, the, the, the engineering side of this project is easily the simplest part. We, we could have built this 2,000 years ago. The, the Romans would have built this project 2,000 years ago. There's just, that's not even up for debate. Uh, the Chinese built the Grand Canal over 2,000 years ago. And, and this is simply, it's a project that's no more difficult than that. We'll, we won't be using slave labour. We'll be using D9. Okay, well, yeah, well, say we do we do build it. Upon completion, would it really drop with the region? Because, I mean, water transfer projects work in China because you continuously divert a percentage of major rivers to other areas uh, and where the floodwaters are a bonus quantity. I'm guessing that's a similar idea to the Bradford scheme. I'm not sure. Some people, when they talk about it, they talk about the floodwaters only. So I'm not sure if you're only diverting floodwaters or if we're talking about a continuous percentage of waters. Um, and uh, the problem that I envision that might, you might want to correct me on is that we've got a lot of excess water falling in a short period of time, which has capacity problems when it comes to capturing it, which is a problem for all mass water storage facilities. Yep. How are you planning to store it and distribute it uh, over, you know, a 10-year drought, per se? Okay. We have um, the, we will be catching 5% um, of the water for three months of the year only is the diversion um, goal, which is four Sydney harbours a year um, coming out of the upper Burdekin. That will be transported by the open channel. There, the CSIRO recently discovered uh, eight Sydney harbours worth of underground aquifers in the Burke region, which we can use to put the water. The, the water gets stored underground for when it's needed. So there's zero evaporation. Uh, once we... Uh, 
So zero evaporation, storage there for eight years, which can be pumped to the surface and needed during drought times, as well as continually, um, continually uh, putting water out there down the channel. So the, the darling will never run dry again. It's as simple as that. Uh, We've got to be careful. We don't want to fully allocate every last drop of water. I mean, that's just ridiculous because it puts people into hardship. There should always be excess flows and flows from time to time will be stored underground and then they'll be pumped back to the surface and used at that stage to to irrigate during during the, you know, the once every 25, once every 100-year drought or even once every 10-year drought. But we... The four Sydney harbours is roughly equivalent to 33% of the entire Murray-Darling irrigation water in a bad year when, they, when they, um, the government turns the screws and there's not a lot of water for irrigation. So in a bad year, it'll be a 33% increase and that's with no storage. And once we put the storage and in... What, sorry, what happens if... Um, the Burdekin River itself, like that water storage area, is actually low in capacity. So what do you do if Queensland's experiencing drought conditions and you're unable to take water? Uh, we would rely on the storage in the, uh, the underground storage in Burke. So uh, it is we... a set capacity. So it's a set capacity that you would then have to allocate. Yes. Um, yeah, it's not, not unlimited water. And Yes, yeah, correct. And there'll be times, there'll be years when we take no water. It's, it's as simple as that. We, you can't be taking water every year. If, the, if there's a drought in North Queensland, which very, very rarely happens uh, in, on the coast in Townsville, Doesn't, there's not too many drought years. A lot more uh, even um, flow of rain than down the other parts of Australia. We will take no water. And there will be years where we take no water and the store, we'll have to rely on storage. Right, no, it's important to clarify the difference because, you know, water projects around the world are all different. And so some of them are permanent allocations and some of them are not. And uh, you don't see it clarified very often what we're talking about. So um, taking all that, what is the risk that if you manage to capture this excess water and store it and distribute it, that it will simply be bought by agricultural communities downstream for water-hungry crops, which will lead to an increase in the farming and agricultural industry? which will then increase the demand of water beyond the capacity of the planned project? Or what do we do if environmental groups start demanding um, environmental flows that take from your capacity, uh, you know, like, like they did in the previous drought that we just saw? Um, is that a concern that would have to be built into legislation to protect the water storage facility? Or um, have you thought about those, those problems as far as the scheme goes? Well, there's no doubt in Australia that the... Uh, Murray Darling Basin Authority has it's just not working right they're, they're, it's just just ridiculous what's happening um, to our irrigators uh, the first thing is complete transparency with with all water trading complete transparency uh, with a complete a new a new model on water uh, water usage and water flows has to be built in uh, we, our initial pro, um, proposal was let's just, we're just going to put more water in and let the current management decide what to do with that extra water. That, that was our going in point. The more we've spoken to, to community groups, the more interest we've had, it, it's just blatantly obvious that 
um, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority has to just be thrown out and started again. Uh, you can use the same name, that's okay, but the whole premise of it, has, it has to just be fixed. It's just not working at all. Uh, same with the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder. They, they've just lost the plot, and it's so much so with this green ideology that's, that's sweeping uh, bureaucracy, um, it, it really is uh, impeding everybody's progress. Yeah, and we would love... With the green ideology, one, they don't want you to build a water resource, but then when you have a water resource, they want to use it entirely, despite the fact they tried to stop you from building it in the first place. That's my Absolutely. experience with the green regarding dams. Um, <laughs> but you know, I don't, I'm not going to argue or squabble about the cost because everything costs money and infrastructure projects are often costly regardless. So let's just pretend it costs money and, and move on from that point. So we'll talk about some genuine criticism that you know we should have a chat about. Do you have concerns about interstate politics? Because this project will obviously cross state lines and the states have not only bad track record of dealing with infrastructure inside their own states, but, you know, we have the change of governments. We have uh, governments that are led around by press opinion. What's your worry regarding how the states will actually handle the project? Well, they'll, they'll, of course, there'll be a lot of resentment from Queensland. And whenever they because the water source from Queensland, running through Queensland, there's always the risk that some lunatics in the Queensland government, and they've got a couple right at the moment, um, that they will turn the water off. And, and there needs to be, um, it needs to be a federal project without a shadow of a doubt. Um, one, one person's got to be responsible, not four different water ministers. It's got to be one water minister responsible for the whole lot. Shoot, and, and the water... It, the whole Murray-Darling Basin's got to be re renegotiated, reworked out. And yet we, we have a lot of doubts and we, uh, that, the, uh, that the states can't manage water across boundaries. It, it, it's just some of the things that have been done is just plain ridiculous. I mean, down in Victoria, you've got the Varmer choke. Um, for a start, the Victorian government put in or approved a, an almond plantation in the wrong spot. There's so much land up there uh, along the Murray that, this, that an almond plantation could have gone in. It should have gone upstream of the Barmachoke. It's just, it's just a no-brainer. So now they're destroying a forest of um, national significance, uh, delivering water to an almond plantation, which is just, it's just crazy. Now, the, and ownership of water, I mean, and the reason the Victorian government won't fix that, the largest owner of water in Victoria is Vic Super, which is the Government Employee Superannuation Fund. They're the largest owner of water in all of Victoria. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, I've always been more in favour of the federal government and the states being known as water and, you know, civilians being entitled to, to water resources. But unfortunately, water has become heavily politicised. We don't want to end up like uh, Asia where you've got China playing water politics with its neighbours. We could have a, a state version of that where Queensland might decide to just cut off New South Wales and Victoria in the times that they really need it. So we have to be really careful about how much control the states have over um, a plan that's supposed to drought-proof other states. Well, we, we all know that China is capable of doing anything and there will be times in the not-too-distant future where they will simply... They've got 11 dams are on the Mekong River. 
in China, 11 Chinese dams. They will turn the water off. They will put the, um, their southern neighbours into permanent man-made drought at the drop of a hat. They, they will be, there will be 50 million or more legitimate refugees on our doorstep because of China um, blocking water. They'll, 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 drop, um, they'll block water into the, um, those countries. They'll grow the crops in China and they'll sell them. <laughs> they sell yes, them that's food. That's I've been writing about in The Spectator for many, many months now and very few politicians are interested. But back in, the, in Australia, what about the social issue? So, like, in China, this is a problem as well, but over here we have a similar issue where you've got existing private property, farmland and Indigenous sites, which any kind of major water relocation project will have to traverse. Has there been any work done by the Bradfield Party on just how big this problem might be or is it not a problem at all because of the regions in which you were taking the water water through? Well the what we would do would be you'd be paying you'd have to pay for the land you we are going to go through private property that's going to be reasonably easy to do it's simply a matter of free water right uh, that that's just a, um, a business decision where we go through Aboriginal lands that will be far more difficult uh, to, to manage and to because we're going to be um, it's not money but monetarily based. That said, um, ev at every five k's, ten k's along the thirteen hundred kilometre channel, we have man-made waterholes along there. So it will be the largest linear park possibly in the world um, and a wildlife refuge. So we'll be because we don't want wildlife in the channel. So we will be we will simply take. Um, take water out of the channel and make small man-made water holes the entire length of this channel. Uh, so that will be something that would we assume uh, that would be very beneficial to Indigenous culture uh, with high, high populations and of animals and drought refuge for animals um, and, and for people as well. So there, there are things that we can do, but it is easily going to be more difficult than building the thing. Building it is going to be easy. We can do that. We could have done it 100 years ago. It is the negotiations of um, getting through private land and through state-owned land and Indigenous-owned land that is going to be the hardest part of it. Certainly not unsurmountable. You've just got to sell them the benefits. I guarantee no matter what you do, you'll still have frogs in the channel. They, they're going to be in there no matter what uh, you do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so what about, uh, this is something that I heard on several videos, uh, the maintenance and upkeep of it. So you've got, I think it was something in the region of 2,000 kilometres of pipeline, which is concrete, and then, of course, you've got the concrete weirs and things. Now, that all has a lifespan of, according to the internet, roughly 100 years, which, you know, by this, the, the pace the, state, the states work, they'll be crumbling just as the first parts can be completed because <laughs> that's how long it's going to take Queensland to get this stuff together. Uh, so what about what are your concerns there or do you think that um, uh, it'll be a viable cost-effective project even given the infrastructure? For sure it'll be uh, cost-effective. Uh, with, um, with the three-month-a-year take, the taking of water over a three-month period, there will, be, there will be periods where the water will be in the, in the channel will be either very low or won't be there at all which is perfect for ongoing maintenance. It doesn't disrupt the delivery of the water because we're only taking every three months during the, the wet season. So there's that benefit. 
there is potential for hydro along the on along the route. Um, if you use your followers Google turbulent water system or turbulent hydro, there's low flow and low pressure hydro that can be incorporated, which gives us something others something else to sell. Uh, and in India and both and America, both countries are now putting solar farms on top of the channel. Um, there's a whole other debate. Do we need solar? Do we need any more solar? But let's but, not go down I mean, that path. That sounds yeah. like an absolute nightmare to me, solar yeah. panels on the channel. Then you'll right. have to run around it. Like you talk about maintenance, the solar <laughs> panels will be your maintenance problem. <laughs> yeah. Let, but, let, let's not do that. Let's just have a water project. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the, one of the big uh, problems that I sympathise with and have observed in other countries that have done these big water projects is the effect of reduction of flood on the local fisheries. So you've got the Great Barrier Reef Lagoon that some people raise concerns about, mm -hmm. and disrupting water flow on big rivers do have uh, repercussions on fish nurseries. So what do you say to uh, questions regarding that? Well, we're, not going, we're certainly not a flood mitigation uh, program because taking 5% of the water in that period is not going to stop floods. And... Unfortunately, houses are, we, we're not going to stop houses getting flooded in the Burdekin Valley and in Townsville because we're just not taking that much water. Uh, we, we will reduce the, the high level by very small amounts, but there should be some reductions in the amount of uh, water that's rushing over farmland. And as, as water rushes over commercial farmland, it's picking up uh, uh, chemicals and um, um, fertilisers that aren't normally in the Australian um, environment and it's t taking those on its way to the sea. So when there are huge floods in Townsville, uh, there's a lot of uh, contaminants or, that go into the um, Great Barrier Reef uh, that are not 100% natural, That's so the, um, superphosphates, etc. And we will reduce that to an extent, but we're certainly not going to stop flooding and we just can't, can't, because we're not taking that much water. Well, uh, I've just come out of floods, so I totally get the whole <laughs> flood and drought cycle. And, uh, you know, without the floods, I mean, we, as much as we hated the flood, it did do some serious damage. Everything's now green. So, you know, as uh, China has worked out, if you try and stop flooding in general, you will lose your agriculture. So I'm Glad that the Bradford scheme has clarified that it's definitely not going to stop flooding in Queensland because it needs it. Uh, but there are really two questions, I guess, we're coming to the end here. And the first is whether it's technically possible, which everyone agrees that it basically is. Uh, the second is whether or not it is the best solution to the problem of water in Australia. Now, technologies, as you said, have changed a lot since Bradfield drew up his scheme, and that's why the scheme has been altered. Um, but we always have to be careful that we're not pursuing a romantic engineering vision for the sake of it, you know, rather than coming up with our own solutions. So I'll put this to you that's um, been running around. Um, are there other solutions that you've considered as far as solving the water problems, like the desalination plants that we see in the Middle East, which support massive agricultural industries and they are located close to where the water is required and they are scalable. So it doesn't matter if you've got a 20-year drought in Queensland, you're still going to have water for the agriculture in that area. Um, and I know that desal gets a bad rep in Australia, but that's because we've been using it to top up other major dams and we don't have it on all the time. So it's not a proper desal process. I'm talking about 
a, a Middle Eastern version of desalination. So is the Bradfield scheme the best solution um, to your problem or have you thought about incorporating other water solutions that are now available? Uh, desal is excruciatingly expensive and we, we have water. The, the one thing that the Middle East doesn't have, they don't have water anywhere. Uh, we have an abundance of water in northern Australia. I think uh, Bob Catter mentioned the other day that if um, from Townsville up was its own country, it would be the third wettest country in the world. So we, we have a lot of water in Australia and we have we can do we can deliver water to a, a small fraction of the cost that a desalination plant runs at. I mean Adelaide, the driest capital city, even during the drought, the government had to pay them to turn on their desalination plant because Adelaide, even though it's not in the uh, Murray-Darling Basin, takes all its water, gets its water from the Murray-Darling Basin. Yeah, the desal plants were terribly managed by all the state governments. They should have turned them on well before they got into that situation. So I'm fully mm -hmm. admitting that the governments in general manage their water facilities poorly, including how they manage their desal plants. <laughs> mm -hmm. But on a, on a dollar per litre, we're a small, small fraction of what, what their cost is on a dollar per litre. And it also brings vitality and life to, uh, to inland Australia. The, these areas that have been the backbone and, you know, we rode on the sheep's back and, and yes, you're right, that's all romanticising it. But we can also uh, change the population density of some of the cities, some of the, you know, the the urban population densities are just getting out of control in some of our cities. We we don't want to end up like some of the um, Asian cities, like some of the American cities, just and South American cities with just suburb after suburb after suburb. We we need to be able to to have a a good population spread across the country as well, and that's what the Bradfield scheme does as much as anything else. Yes, well, I guess what your project offers, which a desal doesn't, is, of course, the water access across the whole back of the Queensland arm down there, which is not something that a desal would do. So you're offering water to a larger volume of land and animals and environmental purposes than a specific built solution, which is very admirable indeed. Uh, final question is, of course, politicians do a lot of talking, and I've heard uh, there were so many videos online of LNP, Labor, um, getting up and supporting a project before an election in Queensland. They get up and have a chat about it and say they're going to look at it and investigate it. There's been several panels uh, run on it. But as soon as the election's said and done, they vanish. It's only really one nation that I've seen actively supporting your project, albeit in a revised form. So what would you say to politicians if they could come, if they would support a halfway sort of Bradfield scheme. Would you support that in the interest of getting something started and done or uh, is it all or nothing? Now, politics is a lot about negotiation and it's not, whilst our, our dream and, and our vision is taking the water from one side of the Great Dividing Range to the other, the most efficient manner possible and watering inland Australia and benefiting four states, uh, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. And, that, and that's what we want to do, without a shadow of a doubt. However, if 
Queensland came up with a proposal that kept all the water in Queensland. All the additional water was used uh, in Queensland. That would be a benefit to Australia without a shadow of a doubt. We still get the increase in agriculture. It's just that it's all focused in Queensland. Uh, and if and Queensland can come out and, and do that tomorrow, they can announce this tomorrow. They're not going to. Uh, to. In order to get this done, we're going to need a senator in each state to be able to put the pressure on the federal government to, to take charge, take control and get, and get it done. Uh, politicians are notorious for, you've said it, they're just, going to make, they're just going to talk the talk before the election and do whatever they want afterwards. It's pretty easy to come out and say, oh, it's, we've investigated, it's not feasible. Well, it was feasible, it is feasible, and you can do it. You just have to want to do it. I mean, you just have to want to do well, it badly we, enough. Well, as we've seen, they're prepared to throw hundreds of billions of dollars at renewables projects that are one would argue, far less effective in return for benefit. So we can definitely do whatever we want. We just choose not to handle the water crisis for some unknown reason to the eternal frustration of farmers and citizens everywhere. And I guarantee when something like Warragamba Dam runs out, of uh, runs out of water, they'll start asking the questions of where is our water infrastructure in this nation uh, when it starts affecting city politicians, which will be a while. But it's very admirable to finally find a party that, actually cares about the concept and the idea even at the you know if they have to negotiate you know that it's wonderful to see your spirit and your belief in actually doing something good for the country for the sake of that purpose rather than political power so thank you so much for joining us today on call it was an absolute pleasure no worries. thank you very much thanks for helping us get the word out there alexander very 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 um, that's okay oh i forgot we always I forgot. We always have a fun question. I didn't tell you about it. So oh. this is without notice. Okay. Um, we usually ask um, if you could have dinner with anybody, living or dead, who would it be and why? Do you have any thoughts of uh, your I'd, I'd ideal like, person to I'd, sit down and have a chat with? I'd like to sit down with Dermy, Dermot Brereton, and just um, have a chat about how he'd go playing footy today uh, with the new, the new rules of limited contact. And see, see whether if he you know, <laughs> well, see, see if he thinks he'd be as effective and how he would change his game. Because uh, whilst he was a, we all know he was a thug and a hood, but he was a very, very intelligent sportsman, a very intelligent footballer. And I'd like to know how he would change what he his game style uh, to be the most dominant centre half forward of this era. Wonderful, great answer. Uh, that's the first sports answer that I've had on this show so far. So wonderful. And uh, thank you for joining us. And you have all the best of luck in your future endeavours. And I hope you see the Bradfield Party, you know, up at the next election and uh, fighting for water security in Australia. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time, guys. Thank you for joining us on Curtain Call. We are hosted by The Good Source, the home of conservative and libertarian voices. Help us fight fake news by following us online. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all good podcasting services. If you enjoy this content, please like and subscribe.